Let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be gathered together again, Lord, but specifically that we can be gathered together as a group of people who desperately need to hear from you. As a group of people who have different sorts and sizes and shapes of bad things happen to us and we don't always know what to deal with that. As a group of people who sin regularly and need to be reminded of the grace that you have so richly lavished upon us. That we can confess our sin and be forgiven. And that you would do that miracle, Lord, even here in this room of forgiving us of our sin. And so, Lord, as we, as we discuss some things today that, that may be tough, that may be hard, Lord, we pray that, that your grace would calm our hearts, that you would give us peace that transcends understanding, and Lord, that you would help us to walk with you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There is a general form of ignorance that we are all capable of and may regularly do. And before you leave the room because of that offensive statement that I just laid upon you, I just want you to hear me out. The type of ignorance is fairly unempathetic, and it leads us to over-simplistic solutions to someone else's problems. Namely, phrases like, well, why can't we all just get along? Why don't you bury the hatchet? Why don't you build a bridge and get over it? as if any of these phrases have ever really worked. And I find that there's two great remedies to this type of ignorance that we can fall into, and I think even innocently fall into. And, and one remedy is to really honestly, truly walk with someone in the midst of their pain. When you really love someone who's going through something difficult, it just pulls the weeds of unempathy right out of you. It just removes it. And the second is to be well acquainted with the pain in your own life and to know how seldom the advice, why can't we all just get along or just bury the hatchet, how seldom that, that really works out or is, is actually that simple. Last week, Pastor Austin served us really well in uh, the preceding verses to what we're doing today of, of living in harmony with one another, not being prideful, seeking to live peaceably with all. And we, we do fall short of that. And it is hard, but I, I think the text today goes another level deeper to another level of difficulty as Paul escalates what's at stake and he makes a shift in verse 19 from doing everything you possibly can to live peaceably with all 
to do everything in your power to what happens when someone has really wronged you. What happens when you've done everything you can to live peaceably with all? You've laid yourself down. You've become a servant to people. You've sought to act in kindness, being self-controlled with your words and your actions. Not that you've done it perfectly, but you have been working really, really hard at this. You've been really loving. You've been content to serve behind the scenes, not, not seeking any accolades for yourself, quietly forgiving people in your heart, and yet someone just comes and they walk all over you. And they belittle you and they dehumanize you. They lie about you. What happens when we've done everything to live peaceably with all and still find ourselves hurt? What happens when it's not easily resolved or maybe feels like it may never be resolved? What happens when the other person refuses to acknowledge the wrong they've done, when they are not repentant at all, but, but even double down on being justified in the wrong they've done, and they show not even a sign of aptitude for genuine repentance? I think it's important that as, as we were looking at this letter and as we've been looking at Romans 12 here the last several weeks, and, and trying to gauge um, what this means for us as we gather on purpose that this issue of Christians being hurt happens within the church and it happens outside the church. It happens in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our homes. It's weird. It's as though like if you spend time with people, they're going to disappoint and hurt you. I can't quite put my finger on that. Uh, just kidding. Uh, you're all awful sinners. So am I, for the record. But in those instances, it feels like we just have a really bad multiple choice in front of us. I don't know if you guys ever had that experience, but me, uh, some moments in my academic career, I was not what others would call studious. And so I'd get my multiple choice, and I'd read the question, and I'd read A, B, C, and D, and it'd, it'd be like, I know one of these has to be the right answer but I haven't the slightest clue. They all seem kind of wrong. So in these moments of pain, sometimes it's like A is, well, I can sweep it under the rug. B is I can just forgive and forget. C is I can just hold a grudge until they come around. Or, or, and then D is I can just really go after and malign this person and hurt them as bad as they've hurt me. And then there's another one, which is I can just continue to be mistreated. And at best, these options or of attempts at resolution are unsatisfactory, and at worst, probably more honestly, they're of the flesh, and they'll bear bad fruit. They're a shortcut to a solution, and sometimes the longest way from point A to point B is the shortcut because it, doesn't, it, end, it ends up causing more harm than good. But we need to remember, those 
who call on the name of Christ, who make Jesus their Lord, who believe that God raised him from the dead, they're new creations. And as new creations, we set aside the flesh. We, we, we are not of the flesh. We seek a spiritual and godly reaction. So as believers who have responded to the mercy of God, surrendered themselves to the Lord, committed ourselves to transformation, and are devoted to the will of God, what do we do when someone wrongs us in a very deep and hurtful way? Listen to Paul's words, starting in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As transformed people of God, we align the wrong done against us with the perfect will of God by not acting in personal wrath. Paul goes after, and he's kind of a jerk for doing this. He just assumes what our natural tendency is, but the problem is he assumes correctly. That's where he's mean. I'd rather be wrong in this. But when we are wronged, we want to wrong right back. You don't have to go any further than the nursery when there's a hot new toy. Or just a toy that works. Because one kid will have it and they'll hit a button, some lights will go, some music will play, they'll get the little, the little, like the two-year-old dance that looks like they could fall over, but they're also in control. And then our kid comes up and snatches it, and then it goes downhill really fast. But that's where our flesh naturally is. When a wrong is done to you, you push back against it. It's natural, it's human, it's worldly. We push back, hit back, yell back, and fight back. And Paul gives us here what could be in Romans 12, the hardest instruction. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who you will hear from a few times today, or hear his name a few times, he calls this the hardest instruction of the passage. Don't avenge yourself. It's like the Lord is telling us in the text, I know what you want to do here but I need you to not do it and trust me that it will be better if you don't avenge yourself. And this doesn't make sense in the world. It doesn't make sense to our natural fleshly tendencies. In a dog-eat-dog, eye-for-an-eye world, we want to go after them when we are the one who's wrong. But so many times when we're the one doing the wronging, we're like, oh, please just give me grace and mercy here. But when it's us who's wronged, or if you're like me, when it's your loved one who's wronged, you want to go after them. 
you want to stand up and fight. But Paul says, never avenge yourselves. This is not, and I need you to hear me clearly, this is not an instruction to be a passive doormat that is continually walked all over time and time again. Being a passive doormat, I think, would actually be easier than what this passage is calling us to. It would lead us to much less than what this passage is calling us to. This is about actively assigning the wrong done to you and actively assigning the rightful consequence to the wrong done to you. Paul isn't just making this up. He's pulling, as a good Jewish teacher, as a good former rabbi, he's pulling out of Proverbs 22, 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. This is biblical wisdom handed down from Solomon. And as we look at it in terms of wisdom, we see that this isn't just kind of good advice for living a peaceful life. It's telling us it would actually be foolish to reach out and avenge myself. But wise to wait for the Lord to do it. Martin Lloyd-Jones draws a comparison in this passage to Jesus teaching on pride and humility. And, and an analogy Jesus gave one day while he was teaching was, if there's a table set before you, don't walk into the room and assume the place of honor. Because if you do that and you get moved, it's pretty embarrassing. But instead, sit at the place of humility and wait for someone else to elevate you. And so, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he takes this analogy and he says... Basically, he says this, imagine you go into a dining hall and there's a table set out and, it, and you know, the fine dishes are out. Not, not, the chi- not the china paper, but the actual china. And there's great food. And then there's this, this place at the head of the table. And on the plate sits all the wrong done to you and the utensils are what's set forward to make that wrong right. And you think, well, this is the wrong done to me. This must be my seat. And so you sit down. But that's a problem because you don't belong there. It's not your spot at the table. It's the Lord's spot at the table. The vengeance doesn't belong to you. The vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so what we are asked and told to do in this passage is after sitting at that, looking at the utensils of making the wrong right and evaluating how we will clear this plate of the wrong done to us, what we are told to do is to get up so the right person can sit there and deal with it the right way, and that's the Lord. The vengeance simply does not belong to us. And so we wait for the Lord to deal with it, knowing that we will be served something better later on. And so we don't act on our personal wrath, but trusting God's wrath. 
It's not about, sometimes we, we find ourselves in this battle with the wrong done to us. We're like, well, I, God, I know vengeance belongs to you, but I feel like I should really be the instrument of your wrath right here. God, I don't know that you've fully looked at my qualifications to be an instrument of your wrath. I think I bring a lot to the table in that regard. But instead of actively trying to take back that seat from the Lord, it is trusting him and releasing it to him, handing the baton of our vengeance to God, knowing that he will do better things with it than we will. And it is really trusting who God is and trusting who he says he is and what he will do. Paul is pulling out of Deuteronomy where Moses reminds the people of God's faithfulness in avenging the Egyptians for the years of captivity and brutality that they faced. David sings in Psalm 140 of the beauty and the goodness of God's vengeance on enemies. And, how, and, and not just that God has vengeance, but that God delivers us from the mistreatment. So will you believe this to be true about God? Will you believe that God is a God who is fully just? Miroslav Volf argues that this is what makes God praiseworthy, that if he was a God who did not get justice, who just said everything's fine, then he would not be a God worthy of our praise. But he is a God who does get ultimate justice. So will you, as with so many other aspects of who God is and how it relates to our Christian walk, will you trust God with the wrong done to you? This isn't a passive thing. It's a very active step of faith. I want to give you just a few reasons why we can trust God. These, these are starters. First is God loves you. He will seek your justice, and being God, he will get it. God loves you. He loves you so much he sent Christ to die on the cross from you. And if he's willing to do that, if he's, if he's willing to pour out the blood of his own son, what is he not willing to do for you? We also need to realize, and this gets to our theology of sin, the wrong done to you was also done to God. And it was chiefly done to God. In Psalm 51, as David is confessing his sin, the sin that he took another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed in order to cover up his crime, that sin, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And he's not dismissing Bathsheba. He's not dismissing Uriah the Hittite. He's not dismissing everyone who he brought into his scheme. But there's a primary nature in which every sin done is done against God first and foremost. You are God's creation. 
made in his likeness. And when somebody does something to you, they, when they sin against you, they sin against God. And so there's this part of realizing this wrong done to me is done to the Lord. I'm not the only one perpetrated against. God has been sinned against in what has happened to me. He loves me. He has suffered this wrong. And just flat out, he will do it better. This quote, this is going to be hard for you to read. I'm going to, I'm going to turn around. Our wrath is passionate and always lacking an element of control. But God's wrath is always judicial. It is never vindictive. It is never a passion that carries him away, as it were. His wrath and his judgments are always just, always righteous, always holy. And therefore, says the apostle, because of our own condition and inadequacy, and because God is what he is, you must not repay, but leave it entirely to him. Stand aside, as it were, and allow God to work. God's holiness is greater than my fallenness. His ways are higher than my ways. His wisdom is infinitely better than mine. If I want the ultimate justice for the one who has sinned against me, if I want the ultimate wrong righted, then I need to be, I need to not be the one doing it. He will do right. He will do righteously. I think we honestly need to evaluate what would happen if we got our way. What if you had your chance to tell that person off, to harm them back, to give them their comeuppance? Would your form be beneficial? Would your form be right and righteous? Would you be better off for your form of justice? And I'm not talking about within the first five minutes. I'm talking about down the course of your life. Would you be better off? And I think it's worthy to point out that Christ did this. With Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate and the, those who were mocking him while he was on the cross. Even praying for the mockers. Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Keep in mind, this is, this is not a small thing. This isn't just walking away and going, well, God, they're yours to deal with now. This isn't that. Sometimes this is going to be a very daily thing. When that anger starts popping up, when those vindictive fantasies come to mind. Saying, God, this is your vengeance, it's not mine. God, I'm sorry, I'm trying to take vengeance, this is yours. Lord, help me trust you in this vengeance. Remind yourself of all the ways that God has been faithful to you. And then be willing to include in that that God will also be faithful to me in this. God has answered these prayers. God has forgiven me of my sin. God's been giving me freedom from these addictions. God has grown my heart for the lost 
God has provided for me in financial times that I thought there was no way out of. God has done X, Y, and Z. Surely God will also bring justice to this. Let God's past faithfulness to you teach your current situation. Oh, this is not small. This is not flicking your wrist and saying, well, it's God's to deal with now. It's, and God won't just simply go, I'll deal with this later. But he will get the final word. He will get final justice. He is the one who sits on the judgment seat. And we should hold that truth near as we trust the Lord. It's no small thing. And it, honestly, I think it ought to make us tremble a little bit. In Galatians, Paul tells the church that God will not be mocked, but you will reap what you sow. And so we know that that will happen for those who hurt us. We know it will happen for us. And there may be times when we are hurt relationally by another believer who either believes they're fully in the right for the way they talked to us or talked about us or the way they, they let us down, maybe have been gaslighting or minimizing the situation to soothe their own con conscience. In these moments, it's helpful to remember that what is sown in the flesh will be reaped in the flesh and what's sown in the spirit will be reaped in the spirit. And to trust God, to trust the economy of heaven. And in the case where it's a non-believer who has wronged us, God is wise enough, good enough, just enough to make it right. Sometimes this person will face the wrath of God eventually, maybe through Christ. They'll face the wrath of God by being fully convicted of their sins, by realizing the weight of the wrong they've done, brought to an end of themselves, being humbled in a way that's very emotionally and mentally painful to find the, the, the grace of God, to find that Christ is the propitiation for sins. And maybe after they die, they will have to give an account for the wrong that they've done and they'll face that account on their own, apart from Christ. And learn more about the wrath of God than any of us would want to know. This is not taken lightly. You think about the author, Paul had wronged people. He was a persecutor of the church. Paul had been wronged deeply by those persecuting the church. Paul had been wronged by other believers who have accused him, who have misused the name of Christ to seek to bring him wrong. He knew God well. He knew the holiness of God through his apostolic gifting and walk. He knew the, the weight of eternity and the final justice of God and it weighed on him. He called himself a wretched worm deserving of hell. And said in Romans 9, oh, I, I, I wish that I could be accursed so that all Israel could be saved. But it wasn't Paul's call to make in that regard. 
And so for Paul to say that we hand them to the wrath of God because vengeance does belong to him after all, it is not a light thing for Paul. And I hope that as we remove ourselves from the seed of vengeance, that we would do so with the hope that those who have wronged us will learn from whatever form the wrath of God takes on earth so as to repent from their sin and not face his wrath in eternity. And when we are able to do this, we will find it to be quite liberating. That wrath is not at my table. It's not on my back. It is not my responsibility. But I can move on with my life and allow God to carry it for me. And, and having no longer serving the flesh in my need for vengeance, it gives me freedom to live like Christ. To be overcoming evil instead of participating in it. Because if I were, if I were to seek my own vengeance, I would just be adding more sin to the equation. So this is what we do while we wait for the justice of God. And it sounds counterintuitive, but that's kind of what Jesus does to us, right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We act in their interest. This is not to become their servants so that they can repeatedly walk all over us and continually re-harm us over and over again. But this is that in order through kindness and goodness, the kindness and goodness you have from your walk with God that you would care about their basic and observable needs. This, this kindness robs them of the opportunity to feel vindicated in the wrong they have done to you. Imagine a scenario where the person who has wronged you is either sitting alone, feeling quite happy with themselves, or talking to someone else about how right they were to mistreat you because you're such a jerk. And over you come with a glass of water and a cookie. You just deflate all their arguments. You just walk away happily while they steam in anger. How infuriating that must be. Our kindness would rob them of that. It might stir their guilt even more. And even in this, God's judgment can be found. But in this form of God's judgment, your hands are free of sin. acting in their interest, and I need you to listen to me in this, especially in cases where there has been ongoing abuse and there is a threat of ongoing harm, acting in their interest in these cases of abuse and the threat of ongoing harm absolutely and necessarily includes setting firm boundaries. 
The best thing you can do for an abuser is to put boundaries around them so that they can no longer continue to walk in the sin of abuse. That is a way to look in their best interest, to enforce the boundaries, to be honest about the pain they have caused. We'll be honoring to them. And setting and enforcing boundaries and being honest about the pain inflicted can be done in hatred and vengeance and bear bad fruit, or it can be done in love while still being strong. Even if the love is only because they are another human made in God's likeness and for no other thing, even if it's done because you love God even though in the moment you can't find it to love the other person, when it is done with, with that motivation instead of hatred, it can bear really good fruit, even if that fruit is only observable in your life. This is an action that has to be done with faith. To say this person has wronged me and I am going to instead seek their good is only doable in faith. Believing that God will get vengeance, that God is a consuming fire, that God is good, that God is love, that God is holy. You know, I laid out at the beginning the bad multiple choice. And there was one in there that may have sounded the most appealing, and that's simply forgive and forget. And there are a whole lot of wrongs done to us. Let's be honest. There's a whole lot of wrongs done to us where forgive and forget works. They're low-level things, like the one working toy in the nursery being snatched out of your hand. Well, let's also be honest about this. There's a whole lot of wrong done to us where forgive and forget doesn't work. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. And I want to advocate this, that God does not simply forgive and forget. That is a gross oversimplification of what God does. God doesn't look at us and go, oh, that's fine, and carry on. We'll just pretend it never happened. East to the west, you know the whole shebang. That's not what God does. What God does is he says, that wrong that you did is more wrong than you can ever imagine. And even though I am the loving, infinitely holy God of heaven who has made you in my likeness, that wrong that you did separates us so that you cannot be in my presence. So I cannot, as being a holy, just God, I cannot just go, whoop, now we're good. That wrong has to be paid for. That wrong has to be held in account. God doesn't just forgive and forget. What God does is he says, that wrong will be paid for. And because you can't pay for it, my son pays for it. If you place your faith in him, in the one who has died on the cross, 
paying the penalty of sin that you could never pay, if you place your faith in him, then you can be forgiven and your sins will be removed as though they've never happened because they have been paid for. Because my wrath has been satisfied. And so sometimes when wrong is done to us, we need to acknowledge that this wrong is so severe that someone has to die for it. And I can either kill my relationship with this person, I can either sin by wishing them dead, or I can say Christ died for it, and the wrath belongs to God, and it's his to deal out. And he's just. And he won't be mocked, and people will reap what they sow. But we have the opportunity as believers to say, you know what, I've done a whole lot of wrong. And God's wrath to me has been satisfied in Christ because that vengeance was his. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want you to know that your sin is a real problem. And God has wrath over your sin, sin you've done just against him and sin you've done against other people. And you can have that wrath of God satisfied in Christ through making Jesus your Lord, saying, God, you're king of my life. You call the shots now. God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead, accepting the sacrifice on behalf of my sins and praying for God to forgive you and give you newness of life. The vengeance belongs to God. It's not ours to take. And we can trust him that he'll do a better job with it than we ever could. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Lord, we thank you that you would send your son to die on our behalf to absorb the wrath that was set aside for us. Lord, I pray as we at different times, maybe some right now, are really struggling with wanting to take the seat of the vengeance. Lord, would you soften our hearts to you? Let us see you as worthy of carrying that for us. Let us see you as worthy of praise as the holy, just God. And Lord, help us to trust you in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.